Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I am hoping you had a, are having a wonderful day. I am. Um, normally, Saturday is our what I call my wrap-up Saturday. And it's where we wrap up where we went through the previous week. And I'll do a little bit of that right now. But uh, really, I want to focus a little bit on what I like to call previews of coming attractions. That's where we're going to go. Because I'm kind of excited about this. The Gospel of John, 48 episodes. Uh, that's pretty amazing. did something to me during the process and it clarified some issues for me about me which is kind of like what the bible does in the old testament uh you had the uh, you had the 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 tabernacle which later when they got established in jerusalem became the temple but the tabernacle is like a roaming temple, if you will. And there were all these, uh, there were these stations, if you'll allow me to use that word. There's the brazen altar at the beginning. The people would come up to the brazen altar. And then behind the brazen altar and off to one side was called the, the laver. Now the laver was filled with water. It was built of mirrors. And it was filled with water. And the priest would have to go to the laver to, to wash their hands prior to beginning service at the altar or prior to beginning service within the tent of meetings, what they called it. And in the tent, they had the holy place and the most holy place. And the holy place had the candlesticks, the table of showbread and the altar of incense. And in the holy of holies or the holiest place or the most holy place, they had the Ark of the Covenant uh, where the Shekinah glory of God would, would dwell. The, the important part to me is the laver because the priest had to go there before he went anywhere else, before he ministered to the uh, non-priests and before he ministered before the Lord God himself. You go to the laver. Now, the laver was built of mirrors, like I said, so it'd be highly reflective and it held water, allowing the priest to clean themselves. That's a picture, a type, if you will, of the Word of God. That's what the Word of God does. When you get in the Word of God, you get a different view of yourself. You see yourself, and you see what needs to be cleansed, kind of like what a mirror does. You look in a mirror to see, you know, if a woman's putting on her makeup, make sure she gets her makeup on right. If you're shaving or if you're just washing, you look in the mirror so you can see how you look. Uh, the priest would come up to this highly reflective uh, laver, big basin, and he would be able to see his dirt, and he'd wash his hands, and then he'd be clean and ready for service. Um, that's kind of what the Bible does to folks, and that's kind of what the Bible did to me going through the Gospel of John. Um, I very, very, very much was given insight to my personal life. And some of it wasn't directly related to the scripture I was reading at the time, but the word has that, the Bible has that property that when you sit down and you just take the time to think, to meditate, 
it has a cleansing property to it for the believer. That's why it's so important for us as believers to be in the Word regularly. And I have to confess, I wasn't in the Word regularly until I made the commitment to do these devotionals. So I was immensely blessed. Now, the Gospel of John's a good place to start when you're getting back into things because it reminds you of who you are in Christ. It reminds you, first of all, who Jesus really is, who Jesus said he was, who he really is, and why what he did was so important to us. So that blessed me. Now, we're getting ready, and as you saw by the opening introduction there, I'm not done with John yet. Uh, we're going to look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Three tiny little letters. Now, when John the Apostle, same guy who wrote the Gospel, wrote these three letters, it's kind of interesting. If you were to take just a broad overview, 1st John was written to area churches around Ephesus. In other words, it was a cyclical letter meant to be read at several different churches. Second John was written to a particular church. And third John was written to a very specific individual. It's kind of interesting how that works out. All the churches, one church, one individual. So uh, that's, that's a basic outline of first, second, and third John. The other thing, the reason I'm not done with John yet is because we, we talked about this, I think, in the beginning of the Gospel of John. How John wrote these, these things at the end of his life. And you can kind of look at them as a last will and testament. John, I won't say John, there was desperation, but there was a sense of urgency. John was the last of his kind. He was the last eyewitness to Jesus' death and resurrection and ministry. He must have held such a preeminent and important place in the hearts and minds of the first century church. But it's at the end of the first century, getting going into the second century, and the church, when it began, was considered a, a sect within Judaism. They still attended, they attended the synagogue, and they observed Jewish festivals and uh, traditions. But as the church moved into the world of the Gentile, it started to be infiltrated by Gentile uh, religious observances and customs that were not based on Judaism. It started, these other things that started to invade uh, Christ, uh, Christian theology were coming out of the Roman Greek pantheistic worldview. And there were people who, perhaps with good intentions, maybe with evil intentions, wanted to turn the gospel into something that could be easily understood or maybe harder to understand. We'll get into that as we go through these three letters. But regardless, they were perverting the gospel, turning it, trying to turn it into something that it wasn't. 
And we're going to look at a little bit of that today. And so John, when he wrote his gospel in these three letters, he's really laying a foundation against these heretical ideas that were beginning to present themselves to the church. And after John passes away, uh, Polycarp, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, um, which I would consider uh, his spiritual uh, descendants, he gave them very specific foundation, a very specific foundation in which to fight against these heresies as they became more sophisticated. But it was starting to happen while John was still alive. And that's, you can see that as the driving thing behind John's gospel. Remember in the first chapter, he says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Then the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld him. One of the main ideas that was beginning to raise its ugly head was the idea that Jesus could not be God and man together, that God and flesh were incompatible. So they had to come up with some other kind of explanation. So you you can see that. We're going to go over a little bit of that today. One of the uh, early second century uh, apologists for this new n- non-Christian uh, ideas was a gentleman by the name of Marcion. I think that's how you pronounce his name. I'm going to take a look at him here. Uh, he he tried to uh, he tried to introduce the idea that well, let's just take a look here. He was described as a heretic, a group of believers in a docetic Christology. Irenaeus describes a meeting that Polycarp, which I think Polycarp was John's direct disciple, had with Marcion, Marcion himself in Rome. When Marcion asked Polycarp if he recognized him, Polycarp replied, I do know thee, the firstborn of Satan. Didn't mince his words. Heresy for Polycarp is a danger for the church worse than persecution was. Now, docetism, that's this, is broadly defined as any teaching that claims that Jesus' body was either absent or illusory, illusion. The term docetic is rather nebulous. Two varieties are widely known in one version, as in Marcionism, or Marcionism. I wish I knew how to pronounce that. Christ was so divine that he could not have been human since God lacked a material body, which therefore could not physically suffer. So Jesus only appeared to be a flesh and blood man. His body was a phantasm an illusion, a ghost. Other groups who were accused of docetism held that Jesus was a man in the flesh, but Christ was a separate entity who entered Jesus' body in the form of a dove at his baptism, empowered him to perform miracles, and abandoned him upon his death on the cross. All right. What little I know of philosophy or religious, pagan religious thinking in ancient Rome and Greece I do know that there was this thing about flesh is evil, spirit is good. And that's what they're trying to marry into the Christianity that John preached and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote about and that John wrote about and that Paul preached and wrote about. 
people have a hard time wrapping themselves around the thought that Jesus was the man, was also Jesus the God. And so you can understand how perhaps as Christianity was moving into the Roman Greek pagan world, how some of these other ideas and philosophies would try to marry themselves to make Christianity more compatible to their way of thinking. And they really were trying to remove, take Christianity and take it away from where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They wanted to make Jesus a way, a truth, a life. And you can so you can see where John was going with his gospel. John was very made it very plain in his opening chapter that the word, which is a term for God, a name of God, the word, God, became flesh. Jesus was God and man at the same time. Now, just because he says it doesn't mean it's easy to understand, and I get that. But this is kind of like a, an attempt to meld pagan uh, ideas with the gospel, to make the gospel more palatable to a wider audience with less commitment because there's it becomes uh if Jesus is not God in the flesh it becomes easier to ignore some of the things that Jesus the man said and you could these people would say oh that's Jesus the man saying this or this is Jesus the God saying this and they gives them a way to slice and dice the scripture away and to explain it away so that if the truth of scripture, if the foundation of scripture is taken away, then the foundation can be anything you want it to be. That's where all this is going. All right. This is another one of the thoughts that was being promulgated that was beginning to be promulgated during John's time and which gained greater footing in the time of his uh, uh, disciples. Study the Hebrew scriptures along with the received writings circulating in the nascent church led Marcion to conclude that many of the teachings of Jesus were incompatible with the actions of Yahweh, characterized as the belligerent God of the Hebrew Bible. Marcion responded by developing a diatheistic system. Now, diatheistic means a belief in the theory, a belief or theory of the existence of two gods or of two original principles, one good, one evil. Marcion believed that there was a higher transcendent God and a lower world creator God. The higher transcendent God is the God of Jesus, the father of Jesus, and the lower world creator and ruler is the God of Old Testament. And again, Marcion was trying to resolve the apparent contradictions that he saw between the Christian Old Covenant theology and the gospel message proclaimed by the New Testament. He saw it as two completely separate thought systems, incompatible with each other. So this kind of stuff was starting to come up in John's time. And again, you look at John's gospel, and you can see in the beginning was the word. He's talking about 
Jesus being God in the beginning, part of creation. Jesus was God. Jesus created the world. Jesus was Yahweh. Jesus was God. The Old Testament God. And you have to realize, when John was writing this, there was no New Testament. There was just Torah. Their only reference was Torah. And in fact, the New Testament writings that came to be our, our New Testament were in essence expansions of Old Testament theology. It was very intimately connected to the Old Testament. Paul, a proponent of Torah, he knew the Torah inside and out, upside. Now, he knew the law of Moses like nobody else. He was one of the most genius minds the church has ever produced. You could look at his writings, and he's really shining light on the Old Testament. It became our New Testament, yes. But you have to realize our New Testament springboards directly out of the Old Testament. And in John's eyes, the Old Testament God was Jesus. Marcion couldn't handle that. So he had to come up with a system that separated the two because that's the only way he could separate. That's the only way he felt like he could make sense. Well, that's the heresy, a ditheistic heresy where the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Which one is superior? Well, Marcion's thinking the God of the New Testament was. The father that Jesus spoke about couldn't possibly be the Yahweh of Old Testament. Can you see why John's slant in his gospel was aiming in this direction against this kind of stuff? All right, let's look at something else here. In contrast to the other leaders of nascent, which means brand new, Christian church, Marcion declared that Christianity was in complete discontinuity with Judaism and entirely opposed to the scriptures of Judaism. Marcion did not claim that these were false. Instead, he asserted that they were entirely true and to be read literally. Thereby, in other words, he's talking about Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament. He said it's very true and it's to be read literally, thereby developing an understanding that Yahweh was not the same God spoken of by Jesus. For example, Marcion argued that the Genesis account of Yahweh walking through the Garden of Eden, asking where Adam was, proved that Yahweh inhabited a physical body and was without universal knowledge, attributes wholly incompatible with the Heavenly Father professed by Jesus. According to Marcion, the God of the Old Testament, whom he called the Demiurge, the creator of the material universe, is a jealous tribal deity of the Jews, whose law represents legalistic reciprocal justice, who punishes mankind for its sins through suffering and death. In contrast, the God that Jesus professed is an altogether different being, a universal God of compassion and love, who looks upon humanity with benevolence and mercy. Hmm. Oh, my word. Wow. Marcion held Jesus to be the son of the Heavenly Father, but understood the incarnation in a docetic manner. In other words, that Jesus' body was an imitation of a material body, not really the real thing. Can you see how goofy this is? To us, 
to John, to Paul, and to the next generation of church apologists. Can you see the danger in this? He separates, he's separating Old Testament from New Testament. He's saying that the God of the Old Testament is not the same God of the New Testament. And that the God of the New Testament is all about compassion and love, who looks upon humanity with benevolence and mercy. There's no mention of sin in that formula. God is love. Now, if you take away sin, if you take away our responsibility to be responsible for sin, the sin in our life, then you end up with all mountains point to the sky, all rivers point go, flow to the sea approach to theology. God is a God of compassion and love. He loves you. Don't worry about it. Can you see the implications and the dangers of this? Again, John addressed it in his gospel by saying that Jesus was God. Jesus was not, he was the Old Testament God. There was no New Testament God. There was no New Testament. It was God. Most people tend to forget that. When John was writing this letter, he didn't set out to write a New Testament. Paul didn't set out to write a New Testament. He wrote, these people who wrote what became our new, the letters and books in our New Testament, they were writing to address issues of the wrong thinking about the Torah, about the Old Testament. You can't separate them. You really can't. The Old Testament and New Testament, though they appear to be different, they're very intimately connected. And Marcion wanted to separate the two. Because if he could remove the foundation of the Old Testament, foundation of what it teaches about God and man and sin and responsibility, if he could remove that, then this new religion could be anything you want it to be. Marcion was part of something that's called Gnosticism. Gnostic writings flourished among certain Christian groups in the Mediterranean world, where John was, until about the second century, until the fathers of the early church denounced them, denounced them as heresy. In Gnostic Christian tradition, Christ is seen as the divine being who has taken human form in order to lead humanity back to the light. However, Gnosticism is not a single standardized system. It, it, covers a lot of territory. Basically, it's based on the fact that there's certain special knowledge, Gnosticism, comes. we get the word knowledge from that, that there's special knowledge that Christianity is a mystery religion and there's only certain individuals that have access to this mysterious knowledge. One of the proponents of an early Gnosticism was a guy by the name of Valentine. Valentinians believed and at the beginning there was a pleroma. At the center of the pleroma was the primal father, or bythos, the beginning of all things, who after ages of silence and contemplation projected 30 aeons. All right, are you hearing New Age stuff here like I am? Really weirdness. There's weirdness here. Aeons, heavenly archetypes representing 15 sexually complementary pairs. Among them was Sophia. Sophia's weakness, a curiosity and passion led to her fall from the Pleroma and the creation of the world and man, both of which are flawed. Valentinians identified the God of the Old Testament as a Demiurge, the imperfect creator of the material world. Man, 
the highest being in this material world, participates in both the spiritual and material nature. The work of redemption consists in freeing the former from the latter. One needs to recognize the Father, the depth of all being, as a true source of divine power in order to achieve knowledge. The Valentinians believed that the attainments of this knowledge by the human individual had positive consequences within the universal order and contribute, oh my goodness. No, and this last sentence is what's so important, last phrase is what's so important, that gnosis, knowledge, was not faith, was key to salvation. All right, first of all, they just described here, Valentinian was trying to marry up the Roman pantheon, pantheon or the Greek pantheon with Christianity. A brief study of Roman mythology and Greek mythology sounds a lot like this. These were people who took the gospel that John preached and wrote about, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke preached and wrote about, and they tried to marry it to the world system, removing from the gospel its power and its original message. Isn't that amazing? This is what John was starting to fight about, fight against in his last days. He could see this coming. So we see in the Gospel of John, John's emphasis on Jesus being God, not just a God, the God. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, I know my father. My father knows me. I and the father are one. John says that Jesus was the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Nothing that has been created. Every, I should say everything that has been created has been created by Jesus. Jesus is God. Hmm. When you put it within that light, John makes more sense. Now, I don't know about you, but just these brief little things I've read about this Gnosticism, I see it in the world around us today. There, there's one statement here. Let me see if I can find it. This last statement here. Gnosticism is not a single standardized system, and the emphasis on direct experience allows for a wide variety of teachings. Within the Christian church, there have always been movements that are experience-based. Something incredible happens and that becomes a foundation for a new set of teachings. And they take these experiences and they attempt to mold the scripture to fit these experiences. The abundant emphasis on the gifts of the Spirit is found in Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 has led to a lot of experientially-based dogma and theology which are just wrong in light of the Old and New Testament. But it was experience-based. It's kind of like, if it happened, it must be good. If it happened to me, it must be good. It must be true. And then you, they would start interpreting Scripture in light of their experience. It was a very experience-based thing. That's what the Gnostics, Gnostics were very much involved with in the first century. This stuff was starting to come up and be a big deal. Um, and John, in particular, is addressing 
the foundational teachings of Gnosticism, which were beginning to make inroads to the church at his end time, as he was getting ready to die. So can you, can you see the sense of urgency in this old pastor's heart? The churches that he had pastored and helped found and, and that he had built up were being infiltrated by people who taught stuff like this that we talked about. That's the heart of John in his gospel. That's the heart of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Three short, tiny little letters. Wow. So I'm looking forward to getting to know a little bit more about John. We learned about John the Apostle in his gospel. Now we're going to learn about John the Pastor in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. So, 1st John, coming at you Monday. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. And I'm out of here. Bye-bye. <laughs>